It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky in line at the deli. I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the Ayan Hirsi Ali podcast, a home for critical thinking and common sense. Today, I'm delighted to have Michael Shermer join me. Michael and his work are so important that I've decided that I needed even more time with him. He'll be my guest both this week and next week in a two-part series. This is part one. I hope you enjoy it. Michael Shermer is the founding publisher of Skeptic Magazine, the host of the Michael Shermer Show, and a presidential fellow at Chapman University where he teaches Skepticism 101. For 18 years, he was a columnist for Scientific American. He's the author of Why People Believe in Weird Things, The Believing Brain, Why Darwin Matters, The Science of Good and Evil, The Moral Arc, Heavens on Earth, and Giving the Devil His Due. Reflections of our scientific humanist. Michael, welcome, uh, and I'm just absolutely delighted to talk to you. Um, just to give you, to give uh, the audience an idea, uh, please tell me a little bit about yourself. Uh, where were you born, and uh, the context in which you grew up, uh, and how did you come to uh, defending free speech? Oh, sure. Well, I'm from Southern California here, born and raised. I, I went to Pepperdine University for my undergraduate uh, training in psychology. That's the um, Malibu campus there. It was a Church of Christ school, very conservative and Christian, and I was that at the time. Well, not really politically conservative. I didn't really have a position, but I was a born-again evangelical, so that's where I went. And I got a great education, and I was I was pretty religious for about seven years, and then I went off to graduate school and uh, and then eventually just uh, abandoned my religiosity, became something of a born-again atheist for a while, and then uh, sort of moved in the more less militant direction of of uh, tolerance or or interest in religion, but not committed to it. Um, I mean, we can get into that if you want. It was, you know, basically exposure, not just to science and the scientific way of thinking about claims, but also um, studying comparative world religions and mythology and and understanding that everybody uh, in the world who is committed to a religion f feels the same way I do. Like, well, I got the right one. Too bad those other people didn't get the right one. Well, <laughs> I got to, you know, applying the Copernican principle to myself. You know, I'm not special. So what are the chances I got it right with the right religion and all these other people were wrong? That didn't seem right. And then the problem of evil 
uh, kept cropping up for me that it just, uh, I didn't hear good theistic answers to that. So I moved in the direction of science and reason and, and humanism. And uh, in the late 80s, I got interested in the evolution creationism debate, and I published an article on it, the Louisiana creationism case that went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. And then, uh, when, so that kind of led me to, to creating Skeptic Magazine in 1992 with my partner, Pat Lindsay, and then um, and then I started writing books. And so I'm still a college professor, but only adjunct, only just um, one class a semester. Otherwise, my full-time day job is publishing Skeptic Magazine and, and really uh, analyzing claims that people make of any kind, not, not just the sort of fringy ideas like UFOs or aliens or psychic power or astrology or whatever, but more serious ones like can you derive an ought from an is and in, 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 in what's the right position on free will determinism and, you know, all the big questions that I think, you know, everybody's interested in. And and um, so and then, you know, most recently I, I, I sort of realized that free speech is the foundation underlying all of my work because if we're not free to talk, and think whatever we want, uh, then you know, then all else falls apart because there has to be some way to figure out if you've gone off the rails or if you're going down a, a right rational track. And and because we know from cognitive psychology that most of us are biased in many ways, you have to engage with other people to see and constantly update your your, your positions. Absolutely right. And uh, I, I just for our audience. Uh, evangelical Christianity, I think a lot of us take it for granted that we know what it is, uh, what is it, and how is it different from other forms of Christianity. That's one question. Another one is, did you grow up in a household? Uh, like, why your parents of that persuasion? And uh, when you left, uh, you know, you drifted away <laughs> from evangelical Christianity and perhaps even Christianity in general. Uh, how did your parents respond, your siblings, your friends? Did you lose friends? Were there any threats to your life? Mm. Walk us through that. Yeah. I think my parents and family were relieved because they weren't religious. I wasn't raised in a religious home at all. N neither was it a particularly secular home. It just wasn't anything. It was just the kind of thing people didn't. My parents, they they, they never went to college or anything, so they di didn't give this much thought. And um, and so for me, it was more of a peer group influence. When I was in high school, there was a lot of my friends doing the kind of born again thing. When I say doing it, it was sort of the, this was the early 70s and the rise of the born again evangelical movement, kind of the second round that was very non-denominational. In other words, it didn't, it, we weren't interested if you were Catholic or Protestant or Baptist or whatever. It, it was just, um, just read the Bible on your own. Just, just go straight to the source. You know, that that turns out to be harder than it seems. But that that was the goal at the time. And I remember in high school, I I had a number of my Christian friends who were trying to influence me. And so one in particular, I went to a Sunday service that it turned out to be a Presbyterian church in Glendale, California. And um, I was so inspired by the preacher that, you know, he did a calling at the end, you know, come on up and be saved. I'm like, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> so I marched right up there and I did it. You know, the whole John three sixteen, you repeat that, you know, so God so loved the world. He gave his only begotten son, blah, 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 have eternal life. Okay, I'm in. So the next day, Monday, I went back to school, high school. And I told my friend Frank, this was a different friend, uh, I said, I did it. You know, I, I, you were telling me I should do this, so I did it. He goes, well, where? I said, the Presbyterian Church. He goes, oh, no, that's the wrong one. I went, what? <laughs> <laughs> the wrong one? 
<laughs> turns out he was a Jehovah Witness. I'm like, oh, okay. So that that always stuck in the back of my mind, like there's a wrong one and a right one, even just within the Christian yep. belief. Okay, that's interesting. Right. So I sort of held on to that. And then, um, so I, I kind of pursued that and thought, well, I'm going to be serious about this. And, and I always wanted to be a, a college professor that seemed like a great job ever since I started college. I started actually at a community college to get my general ed out of the way. And I thought, well, what a great job this is to be a college professor. I mean, you get all this free time and autonomy <laughs> and you can pursue great ideas and writing and teaching and you get paid for it. Wow. All right. And uh, so then I realized, okay, so if I want to be a college professor, I have, a, I have to have a PhD. And what I'm interested in is theology. So I looked into getting a PhD in theology and particularly in, in Christianity with a Christian orientation. And they said, well, you have to master uh, Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic, and Latin. And I could barely get through Spanish. So I thought, oh, boy, I'm never going to make this. So then I switched to psychology because I, I could do statistics and research methodology and all that. And that's what kind of took me down the path. Uh, to toward science, but in short, my my siblings and parents, I think, were relieved because I was witnessing to them constantly, and this is what it means to be an evangelical. You evangelize. You literally tell people about the good news right. that is Jesus mm-hmm. died for your sins. You know, we're all born in original sin, and so the only way out is not through good works. Although that's nice if you can do that, but you have to just accept Jesus. That's it. So I, you know, I went door to door. I did the whole witnessing thing, and I, I'm sure I drove people crazy that weren't into this. And so when I stopped doing it, I think they were probably quietly relieved. And uh, so for me, I didn't have a, you know, a lot of family pressure. That was, it was no pressure at all to quit. Uh, no one even, I, I think, if I didn't tell anybody, no one would even know. Yeah. I used to wear an ichthus, a uh, little uh, fish uh, uh, necklace around my neck. Uh, that had the the little Greek symbols, uh, Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior, in Greek. That was kind of a big thing in the seventies. You know, when guys wore you know necklaces. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it was the along with bell bottoms. You know, it was the seventies. So uh, you know, I, I remember my girlfriend had given given me this, and and I just felt you know hypocritical wearing it because I didn't really believe anymore. So I took it off, and um, and then toward you know I was pretty much out. And so this is kind of a personal story back to the problem of evil. My my girlfriend at the time, Maureen, was her, her name. Uh, she was in a horrific car accident and broke her back. Mm. She was paralyzed from the waist down. Oh. And it was terrible. Yeah. It was just awful. She was in you know intensive care for months. And oh. and I used to go there every day. And, and, and I remember just taking one last shot at it. Like, you know, if, 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 there's no reason this should happen to her. Why would this? She's just a sweet, wonderful, intelligent, thoughtful, beautiful woman. Why would, you know, God allow this to happen? So I, I, I actually prayed. Mm. You know, it wasn't a big test. I, I just felt so bad for her. I wanted to do something. And, of course, nothing happened. And she's still paralyzed to this day. Oh. We're in touch every once in a while. And, um, th- and that was kind of the last straw. So it's not just that, you know, I, I pursued science and therefore gave up theism and became an atheist. It's more complicated than that. And that was kind of the last straw. Yeah. I think most people I mean, don't understand that that journey is actually really complicated. It's not just like a light bulb goes off in your head. And uh, what, if any, consequences, uh, you know, physical threats, losing friends, did you ever feel scared uh, leaving Christianity? No. In 
in, in my case, no, I, I didn't. Of course, you know, living in Southern California, it's a pretty liberal right. <laughs> society here. So, you know, I, I feel bad for people that, you know, grow up in like the deep south because yeah. I get letters from these people saying, you know, basically they have to get Skeptic Magazine like in a brown paper bag so no one yeah. sees it. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, you know, the, the, only qu- the only question in the in the town is, you know, which Baptist church do you go to? <laughs> Not yeah. are you an atheist or a theist? So. <laughs> so for me, no, I didn't have any of that. Yeah, I was surprised after I published Infidel and came to the United States, I would have people come to me from America, you know, white Americans, former Christians who would say, you know, we went exactly through the same things. They feared for their lives. Uh, they were put under psychological pressure. They considered suicide. So, I, you know, I just wanted to put it out there. It's it's not something easy uh, if your entire environment. No, it's, ter- it's, yeah. it's, it's terrible. To me, it's an indication that, you know, to what extent do your friends and family really love you? If if they're going to give you a choice, you have to give them up. Or if if you give up your religion, then they, to me, it's it's a, a bad test. It's an indication that they don't that, that something less important is trumping something more important. That is love and attachment to your friends and family is, should should triumph over uh, religious beliefs. But as we've seen recently with QAnon, there there's stories the last couple months of families breaking up over QAnon. It's like, are you kidding me? You know, married couples getting divorced because one of them believes in QAnon. It's like that. Okay, you've lost the you've lost the narrative. Here. Yeah, you've lost your you know orientation. That's not important compared to relationships. Yeah, and now I want to ask you that central question, and then I will get into your book. By the way, just an excellent book. I echo everyone that has given it a blog in the back, but I really want to quote from Nicholas Christakis uh, in terms of just summarizing this book by Michael Shermer, Giving the Devil His Due. Uh, Christakis writes, it's a detailed roadmap for thinking well and clearly about interesting and challenging ideas. This vivid, erudite, broad, and deep collection of essays is marvelously written, and that I can attest to, so much so that as you finish one essay, you cannot resist starting the next. On the range from ancient civilizations to the colonization of Mars, from free speech on campus to gun control in cities, is as astonishing as it's engaging. I recommend this book to everyone. I'll start giving it to everyone. But before we get into it, please, uh, for someone like me who idealized uh, the Enlightenment, and still I continue to idealize the Enlightenment, and the civilization out of which it came, what we now call Western civilization or Western society. Uh, how do you explain this uh, uh, attraction? And uh, uh, I'll put it a different. How do you explain the present-day hostility to reason and science coming out of the West? Oh, yeah, for that. Yeah, it's weird. It, it, it's one of the reasons why I wanted to, to, to write the book when I did, particularly those chapters. It's a collection of essays, but I added uh, some new stuff at, at the beginning on free speech because, you know, I had always been pretty liberal when it comes to free speech or classically liberal. And I was always defending it against conservatives like in the 70s, 80s and 90s. I'm fond of pointing people to this 1980s video of Frank Zappa, the rocker, 
who's on uh, CNN, I think, Crossfire. Yeah. And, you know, they're just grilling him about rocks. Rock lyrics are terrible. It's these old conservative guys, you know. It's like, kids these days and the moral fabric of America is disintegrating because of rock lyrics. And he just kept, keeps saying, they're just words. You need to get out more. They're just words. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and now that's kind of reversed. Now it's uh, liberals saying, oh, no, the, the words equal violence and, and the hate speech can only be countered with censorship and so on. So it's a, sort of a reverse valence of the... Uh, uh, of the uh, you know kind of censoriousness now of the left lucky land casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky lucky in line at the deli i guess aha in my dentist's office more than once actually do i have to say yes you do in the car before my kids pta meeting really yes excuse me what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky i never win and tell well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Instead of the right. And, you know, if you want to defend free speech, you go, you go on Tucker Carlson on Fox News. It's like, what? Are you kidding me? This guy is the defender of free speech? All right. Well, then, you know, something has get gone, gone haywire here in America. So for that, we have to go back. I think it's good to just remember the long, you know, millennia-long fight for free speech. Um, actually, most governments and religions do not support free speech. Right. They would only too easily want to control their followers and citizens and silence them whenever they can, especially dissenters. That's the normal state of things. So it's, it's you know, taken just centuries and centuries of protests and litigation and laws and so forth to uh, changing of norms to get it to be where we commonly accept now free speech is the way it should be. Um, and and even in America, you know, that's why I open with that um, that uh, that trial of, of um, the United States versus um, Schenck. Charles Schenck was the um, uh, socialist director, Philadelphia chapter of the socialists, defending these uh, pamphleteers. He was one of them uh, protesting the war, the, the American involvement in the first world war, the draft, they, they, they uh, passed a pers- um, conscription. And so he argued that, you know, conscription is essentially the government violating the 13th amendment. That is they're, they're enslaving you. They're taking your body and say, we own your body for the next X period of years. And, you know, you could go and die. And, and so he was people. arguing that's unconstitutional. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, now, of course, you know, protesting wars is, is pretty common, no big deal, but it wasn't at the time. Mm-hmm. And so this was the 1919 case, Shank versus the United States. Here's what um, 
uh, Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes wrote, and your listeners will be familiar with these lines, the most stringent protection of free speech would not protect a man in falsely shouting fire in a theater and causing a panic. The question in every case is whether the words used are used in such circumstances and are of such a nature as to create a clear and present danger that they will bring about the substantive evils that Congress has a right to prevent. And then you okay, write so that. the moment you set that up. And then you write to that. Christopher Hitchens said, fire, fire, in what looked like an auditorium. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, it's a great, it's a great video. Uh, if, you, if, you, if you Google Christopher Hitchens, comma, free speech, it's the first thing that comes yeah. up. He's just so funny. He's just so articulate <laughs> and witty. Uh, but that's right. Um, you know, the moment you set that up, uh, that precedent, and say, okay, anything deemed to be the equivalent of falsely shouting fire in a crowded theater, uh, then it should be censored. Well, it's easy to then go down the road and say, well, I think, you know, your protests here or your statements there are going to incite violence or riots or whatever. Anybody can say that. It, it almost never happens. And and yet, um, you know, that, that set up a legal precedent. So it wasn't really until the Berkeley free speech movement that pushed back against that. And again, I'll, I'll re let's remember that it's now Berkeley that's banning people like, trying to ban people like Ben Shapiro and Milo Yiannopoulos and even Bill Maher. Yeah. I mean, Bill Bill is so straightforwardly liberal. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and yet even, you know, yeah. even he's been censored there. So, um, you know, that's, that's the problem with it. Um, it's absolutely say, crazy, yeah. So, Michael, I think then it's really important that uh, we do, you write, uh, you know, and this is coming from you, it's the way you summarize it and see it, the Ten Commandments of Free Speech and Thought Against Censorship. Shall we take them one by one? Uh, number one, who decides yeah, sure, which speech? Yeah, who decides, number one, so commandment number one, who decides which speech and thought is acceptable? Right. So is it you, me, or you and I set up a committee or we have, you know, a majority and we silence them? If we get 51 percent of the people agree that your speech is dangerous, then you have to shut up. Uh, you know, so th th that's a problem. And then number two, what criteria are you going to use? You know, ideas yeah. that you disagree with, ideas that I disagree with or the thought committee or, uh, you know, again, that, that's putting so much power into the hands of, of, of a tyrant because that's what tyrants want. They want to have that. That kind of power, but in college campus, uh, let's see number three. Okay, is, go on number three. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, go yeah. ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, no, no, but uh, yeah, it's not just the. Oh, so I got this one, number three from Hitchens. It's not just the right of the speaker to speak, but for listeners to listen. He says that in that speech. So, you know, when when Charles Murray shows up to give a talk at at a university. And he has a crowded theater there, and the noisemakers come in. You know, the, uh, the the students, you know, trying to shut him up, silence him by just making a lot of noise. Well, it's not just his right to speak that is being violated. It, there's a lot of people there that want to hear what he has to say, yeah. even if they disagree with him. They still want to know. Well, what are the arguments? Right. And um, you know, and that's the problem with the you know the the, the veto. That you know the the, the what was the, the heckler's veto is it's, it's violating the rights of listeners. So why would people want to listen to someone like a Charles Murray or, or whoever? Mm -hmm. And the answer is, even if you're completely right, uh, you might learn something new. Like oh, I, I never heard that particular argument. Okay, now I have to improve my 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 correct position. Or or you might be partially right and or partially wrong, and you can update 
we'll say it in a Bayesian way, you can update your priors to, you know, double check on your credence of your beliefs, right? Right. And and that's a constant process. And 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 then number six, you might be completely wrong. So hearing criticism and counterpoint gives you an opportunity to change your mind, improve your thinking. I mean, the, the, the underlying all this is that none of us are omniscient. And so we all have the potential to get it wrong. Even if it, even if you're pretty confident you're right, you can't be 100% confident. So you got to, everyone has to admit, I could be par- at least partially wrong, maybe just 1%. Okay. So by listening to a Ben Shapiro or, a, you know, Charles Murray, I'm picking conservatives because they're the ones that get censored on campuses now. Uh, right. Then you have a chance to, you know, improve your thinking. So my example, I like to use my students at Chapman. You know, they're pretty liberal, uh, these undergraduates. And so most of them are pro-choice on the abortion issue, mm-hmm. although some of them may be pro-life, but, you know, they're afraid to say anything. That's the problem. So, but I just ask them, what are the best arguments for the pro-life position? And most of them, they can't articulate it. Or Again, they're afraid to say anything. Uh, and so if you don't know what the good pro-life arguments are, how strong is your pro-choice position really? I mean, you can assert it. I'm pro-choice. Okay, why? Right. <laughs> and, you know, then people kind of get dumbfounded. Well, just because. It's like, well, no, just because is not really an argument. <laughs> right. right. So, again, the only way to, to improve your, your thinking and your argumentation is to engage with other people, which is why debate is way harder than yes. just giving a talk. I do both. And I'm always more anxious when I have to do a debate because it's a lot more work. I, I know I can't just say stuff yeah. and the audience will nod approvingly that the other person standing there on the stage, he's going to rebut me. So I got to be really, you know, on my toes, really sharp, have my, my points all down. And, uh, and that's when that, you know, that's what free speech is about. Uh, let's see. You want to so we can continue here. Number seven, whether right or wrong, listening to the opinion of others, we have the opportunity to develop stronger arguments. Oh, yes, I said that. Yeah. Oh, so for two examples in my, my history, um, Holocaust denial and creationism, yeah. you know, I've debunked both of these. But my understanding of both of these things, evolutionary theory and how and why the Holocaust happened, has been greatly enhanced by engaging people who said it didn't happen. Right. You know, because if you just take it for granted, then you don't really have good arguments. Yeah. You know, or the flat earthers, you know. How how do you know the earth is round and and that it goes around the sun? Are you sure? Can you make good arguments? And uh, actually, most people, when you ask them that, there was a study of Harvard undergraduates a few decades ago where they they had a hard time articulating, (laughs) you know, how we know these things, right? So it's one thing to assert. It's another thing to understand it. And that's why, again, engaging with other people is so important uh, that way. And then finally, you know, the arguments made in favor of censorship and against free speech. Um, if, you know, the only way you can do that is if you actually have free speech. So you can't say, you know, no one can ever say anything anymore. It's like, well, you just said something. Right. Oh, (laughs) right. So, so apparently you can say things. And, uh, in any case, then finally I argue in the final points that, um, you know, historically speaking, you know, my freedom to speak He's in dissent tight. is inextricably tied to your freedom to speak in dissent. If I censor you, why shouldn't you censor me? Mm-hmm. So here we have the principle of interchangeable perspectives mm-hmm. from Pinker that, uh, you know, if I put myself in your shoes and then try to silence you, then, you know, I can imagine that I wouldn't like that. Therefore, I shouldn't do that to you because I don't want you to do that to me. Yeah. Now, when you take all of these Ten Commandments together, the underlying assumption is that people are reasonable and can be persuaded uh, to come to these arguments, <laughs> right? But there are reasons, I think, why uh, people 
don't like free speech. And one of them is, I think the most important one is fear. And I think number one there is the fear to lose power. If you give, if you're a ruler or if you're in a position of power and you allow people to actually express what they think, uh, then you think <laughs> you are, you're, you're giving away power. That doesn't make sense. How do you go around that? That's why governments, by the way, hate, uh, you know, allowing free speech or protecting it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and to put a fine point on that, you know, trying to understand how a nation of Germans, a highly educated, cultured, advanced civilization like the Germans in nineteen twenties and thirties succumbed to become goose-stepping Nazis. Well, in fact, they didn't. The majority did not follow Hitler's uh, either military or exterminationist policies. They they liked some of the economic stuff, but in fact, he came to power in a, as a minority party and then immediately silenced dissenters, yeah. put them in prisons, and, and ended the free press. That's how you do it. You just you just keep people from talking to one another and dissenting for, and criticizing you. And if they do, you lock them up. Okay, that, so that's the most extreme example. But as you said, that's what rulers always want to do. Yeah. Now, so power, yes, it has to do with power. And I think if we fast forward to current uh, conditions, there's a kind of power you have of being able to mob somebody online yeah. or get them fired uh, from their job or something like that. In, in other words, why is it that people are not satisfied with just saying, well, I disagree with you or yeah. I think you hold a, a you know, a, a abhorrent position there? It, that doesn't seem to be enough with the cancel culture. It seems to be we, we need to ruin your life. Yeah. Like embarrass you in front of your friends and family and colleagues and, and maybe if we can get you fired. I think maybe your conception there of power is insightful. Maybe that's what it is. It gives people who don't otherwise have much power a sense of power. Yeah. And then there's also, in, uh, and this is in the religious realm, you can um, constrain free speech or get people to be scared by threatening with hell or you know, all sorts of um, I'm very familiar, obviously, with my background in Islam. You know, if you express certain thoughts that you're being immoral, sinful, uh, and they don't want others to sin. And so uh, there's the fear of sinning, but also uh, there's the obligation to stop others from sinning. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's a kind of a social control thing. Again, back to power. Yeah. Um, you know, th that in fact, just belief in God itself, you know, an invisible eye in the sky watching everything you do. Uh, if, you know, the simultaneous rise of states and religions about six, seven thousand years, maybe five, six thousand years ago uh, is in part for that. You know, if we if, if we have large populations, we can't police them all very carefully. And and so if you think you got away with it, uh, well, you didn't because there's this you know invisible eye in the sky watching you. It's a way of of enforcing people um, to obey the rules and follow the norms. Even the founding fathers made a similar argument. Jefferson, I think it was Jefferson, that made an argument something like this in a in not, not a negative way, really, just saying if we want a self governing people, it would be good if they had an internal governor. Yeah, <laughs> that is to say, if they had rules and morals inside now they were encouraging you know more of a kind of a secular development of of moral ideas that you have through good practice like 
maybe Aristotle's virtue ethic, something like that. But the idea is the same. We, we want you to internalize the desire to act in a good way so we don't have to police you. Again, it's social control, and it's a kind of power, I think. It is a kind of power, and I think people go along with it um, for some of the reasons that you mentioned. As it's applied now in the council culture, you know, you'll be punished. Your life will be ruined. Uh, but sometimes people also go along with it because they're just afraid of appearing stupid. Uh, as you were talking, you know, the Harvard <laughs> students who couldn't articulate, uh, they understood the concept, but they didn't. They couldn't articulate why uh, the Earth is actually not flat. Uh, and why evolution uh, or the argument of evolution is superior to that of intelligent design. It's very difficult for people to get into these debates, so they just go along with it. Yeah, if you ask somebody, you know, so I'm against Obamacare. Well, well, what is it? <laughs> um, well, it's socialized medicine. Exactly. It's like, well, can you articulate anything about it? No. <laughs> people get dumbfounded, right? So here, these beliefs are a stand-in or a proxy for something else. So mm-hmm. it, much like conspiracy theories like QAnon, back to that, I, you know, it's, it's how could anybody believe this ridiculous conspiracy theory about a satanic cult of pedophiles led by Hillary Clinton drinking the bloods of children in a, a Washington, D.C. pizzeria? I mean, it's so absurd mm-hmm. that it's almost laughable. And yet, you know, significant percentages of Republicans especially believe it. Well, they say they believe it, but what is it that they're doing when they tick the box for the survey or pollster that they believe it? They're they're signaling, look, I'm so committed to my party, to the boss, Trump in this case, that I'm willing to say that I believe this ridiculous claim. So Mm -hmm. uh, 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 another example I've tried using uh, as a a different kind of truth, a mythic truth or a a lived experience truth is the OJ trial, right? So, I mean, anybody that watched it could clearly see, you know, he was guilty. But his defense floated this conspiracy theory that the police planted evidence. Mm -hmm. Well, there was no evidence that they planted evidence. But for the African-American community in Los Angeles, given the history, say, back to the 1950s, and ESPN has a nice documentary series on this, you know, the police really were pretty racist, and they really did plant evidence uh, under the idea that, well, we know this is the guy that did it, you know, because we just know, Mm -hmm. and we don't have much evidence, so, you know, we're going to plant the evidence under the idea justification that, well, we got the wrong, we got the right guy anyway, right? That's mm-hmm. kind of the thinking. So for African-Americans in 1994 and 95 for the OJ trial, there was a kind of truth to that defense that the police planted the evidence, not a specific truth about OJ, but a larger truth. Yeah. And I think that's what's going on with a, a lot of these, these uh, beliefs that, that people hold. They, they don't really believe it on a specific level, but it stands for something else. It stands for loyalty to the tribe, to the faction, to the group, the in-group. I mean, I've been wondering, I've been looking at, uh, you know, last year with the killing of George Floyd and the aftermath of that, um, I would go on the website of Black Lives Matter and just read it in detail. And I really wonder how many of the people who have these flags and t-shirts and emblems and who are giving money and endorsing it how many of them actually know what these people stand for yeah probably very few or if they know it's they don't know the details again i think yeah i think it's a tribal thing or 
uh, people feel like they want to do something. You know, you see these yeah. horrible videos online, like the the George Floyd one is particularly bad, and you just you just get outraged. Like I want to do something now. What can I do? Nothing. I'm just I'm just a little guy. What, what, <laughs> yeah. I can't go and change the police or pass legislation. I'm not a congressman. What can I do? Well, I can go and join this uh, group, and I can go online, and I can post on Twitter how outraged I am, and then I kind of feel like, well, I'm doing something, <laughs> even though I'm not really doing anything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, it is that that loyalty thing that is and it's because of social media. Maybe people had these thoughts always and used to express them locally within their little communities, but now you can just throw everything out there. There was someone on CNN the other day who said that, you know, the police will never be reformed until white people see their kids killed. And I wonder if you know, you can say that now on national television. It's not even social media. But the person who's saying that, do they really believe that? I mean... Th- yeah, I don't, you know, they probably don't, again, like, you know, what's Obamacare? I don't know. It, it's probably they don't really know the, the numbers, statistics. You know, we did that study, the Skeptic Research Center published that study a few months ago on, you know, the, the accuracy of people on how many blacks are killed by police every year. And, you know, the, the average number was like, you know, between 100 and 1,000. You know, it's no, it was between like 1,000 and 10,000. In fact, it's, you know, a couple dozen at most. Mm-hmm. And uh, But, again, I, you know, people just don't know. And, you know, the availability heuristic, you just watch the news. You know, you just think, well, that's it's a huge problem. I see this every night. School shootings, mass public shootings, you know, they happen a lot, at least enough that it fills the evening news. And and yet the, the, the real numbers, the raw numbers of people killed in mass public shootings is in the statistical noise compared to general gun violence. Right. But that's, you know, no, no one films or has a film crew at, you know, every single homicide or or suicide by gun or accidental shooting, you know, you just don't have footage of that. So we don't see that. So you have this distortion from the media. That's you know not really their fault. It's kind of their job to report mm. the most horrible things that happen each day. Uh, but that is distorting, you know, to, to our beliefs about these things. And, you know, to your point about, you know, how many whites are killed by, well, a lot more whites are killed by cops. But, you know, again, those don't make the news. You know, John McWhorter made famous for, yes. at least on social media, that uh, Tony Timpa case, which everyone I've always, I've asked about Tony Timpa, they never heard of him. Um, and, you know, it's a white guy. It's pretty much just like the George Floyd thing, you know, knee on the neck and the whole thing. And the cops are making fun of him and joking around and then he's dead. And they're like, oh, crap, I think he's dead. No, it's just terrible. And yet we don't hear that because that's not, you know, kind of the, the media emphasis at the, at the moment or social cultural emphasis at the moment. Yeah, but I think I think you're too charitable to the media. Uh, of course, they do have to report the news and what makes news is absolutely the most awful things that happen. Um, But in a way, I think there is uh, a crisis within our media where uh, the clickbait and profit-making has trumped actual reporting and sort of a balanced reporting of things and thinking through the consequences of uh, just reporting... I, I, I mean, stories that feed the divisiveness and the polarization... Uh, so, but uh, I'm, I, I intend to do a whole series of podcasts on uh, the press. <laughs> That's coming. I, I, I won't bore you with that. But I'd like to 
Yeah, no, I no, that's important, really important. Because okay. uh, okay. even even the so-called neutral news, like maybe ABC, CBS, NBC News. So I I tend to try to watch those each night. One of the three of those, and they they are better than say Fox News and MSNBC. But just what they select to present, you know, they only have thirty minutes minus you know ten minutes of commercials, so they don't have much time. So again, it's like yet another black man shot. That's that makes the news. So even if they try to be objective about it, just the selection process itself, you know, is a, is a problem. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So now we did a lot of the say the negative aspects of uh, silencing free speech. Uh, you know, the distortions, uh, the conspiracy theories, all of that. But then in your book, you also have uh, what I would think of as a positive approach. And I'm going to take, and because you've done it yourself, uh, probably the most controversial issues of our time, which is the gun control issue. And you say mm. that underneath all of this noise are actually two competing worldviews, if only they could just listen to one another. You say conservatives and liberals differ about guns and everything else, but it's, it, it, we hear guns, 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 but it's really not about the guns. What is it about? For the, let's start with the conservatives. This is to encourage listening to one yeah, there are, Maybe you could learn here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, again, I think these are, guns are a proxy for something else. For conservatives in particular, they're a stand-in yeah. for, for freedom and, and autonomy and, and, and rights and civil liberties and, and uh, protection against criminals and governments and, and tyranny, right? So if you say, well, but 35,000 people a year die, same as in, in, in automobiles, and look all the things we've done with automobiles to get the uh, reduce the carnage, you know, seat belts and airbags and, and so forth, you know, why aren't you going along with that? And because for, for conservatives, guns are not like cars. You know, they stand for something else. I've done the, some of these gun debates. I, I got the impression it wouldn't matter if it was 350,000 a year, 3.5 million a year, de, you know, death by guns. It, it, it doesn't matter. It's like that's my constitutional rights in the Constitution right there, Second Amendment. And uh, so, OK, all right. So <laughs> I get that. But, you know, if, if it was terrorism deaths, if, if, if 35,000 people a year died of terrorist attacks, you know, conservatives, they'd lose their minds. You know, they, they, they'd triple the budget of the homeland security and, you know, they'd shut down airports. I mean, they would, they'd have no qualms about, uh, you know, re restricting our freedoms if it was terrorism. But, you know, because it's guns and it stands for something else, then, you know, they're not consistent about that. You call that the strict father model. Oh, there I'm reflecting George Lakoff's uh, distinction in yeah. his book Moral Politics. Or, or, uh, it's very interesting. And, you know, it's a metaphor, so, you know, it's not, not perfect. And other yeah. people may disagree with that. But he conceives of conservatives thinking of the government as a, as a family with a strict father and liberals conceiving of the government as a family with a nurturing mother at the head. You know, and so there it kind of starts to make sense because conservatives are always saying, well, I'm for freedom and autonomy and individual liberty and small government. Well, you're not when it comes to abortion rights for women. Oh, yeah, no, no. And and what about, you know, private sex things with, you know, gays and and, and lesbians? Oh, well, no, that's bad for American moral fabric. This arguments they used to make before, the, you know, the, the Supreme Court voted on, on same-sex marriage. But, uh, you know, it used to be, well, that, well, we have to restrict that. You know, in other words, 
keep the government out of the boardroom, but it, no problem having the government in the bedroom. Well, wait yeah. a minute. You know, or, you know, I want small government. You know, I want to reduce the budget. Well, what about the military? Oh, no, we're going to double the budget of the military. Well, what about nuclear weapons? Wouldn't it be good to reduce those? No, let's update it and, and make more, you know, let, and let's have troops all over the world and open up more military bases. There's something like 900 military bases around the world that we have. Those are hugely expensive. And and yet, you know, conservatives have no problem spending tons of money. And, and if you look at the history of the budget, uh, it grows and the debt grows just as much under Republican administrations as it does liberals. So don't give me this business about you're in favor of small government. You're not. You're in favor of big government, where, you know, prisons and police and military and so on. So, you know, they're just each picking their sides. Of course, liberals, you know, want a larger welfare state and more Social Security and, and uh, you know, food stamps and, you know, and aid to dependent families and so forth. So, uh, you know, there, it, again, I think echoing um, this moral politics idea that uh, George Lakoff, that, you know, you're just, it's, you're emphasizing different things that you think are important. And there, you know, I'm not sure what the truth is because the, these are political truths, not empirical truths. So right. that's why you just have to fight for ele in elections to get your person in there that's going to do what you want them to do. And, but then the point I think, or my takeaway is that if you, it enhances listening. It's not so much about pursuing the truth when it comes to politics, but just listening to the opposite side to to hear what's important for your opponents and see where you can, if you can meet halfway, and what you want to put on the table and what the uh, the other side wants to put on the table. I mean, that is the essence of democratic politics, and it's it seems no, to be no, what we're losing, or am I wrong? Maybe well, America it, was always it, we go through uh, different agree, periods yeah. in, in history. I mean, the, in, in 1800, it was you know, the uh, presidential campaign was pretty divisive. But, you know, it's worse now, I think, in terms of the polarization, at least that's what the data shows, in terms of, uh, you know, the center has been shrinking and the far left and far right have both been increasing. Uh, yeah. So that we know for sure, both in polling data of citizens and also just in congressmen and, and senators and, you know, how much time they spend together, the kind of language they use when they talk to each other, way more polarizing. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that's a problem because, you know, we need two really good, strong uh, parties the way our system is designed. It's never going to be like Europe where you have you know, half a dozen parties or four, four good parties like in Germany uh, because of other reasons. But, uh, but we need those. We don't, if the left goes crazy too far, you know, progressive woke left or the right goes crazy with, you know, kind of a far right the QAnon you know, white stuff. supremacist or whatever, the QAnon and all that stuff. This is bad because that opens the door for the other side to go further that they'd like to go further left or further right. And we don't want that. We want them to push back against each other so that, you know, use a football metaphor, most of politics is played between the two 40-yard lines. That's where it should be because <laughs> yeah. so nothing crazy happens. This is the point that, you know, the first conservative, Edmund Burke, made about the American Revolution versus the French Revolution. The American Revolution was done cautiously, slowly, through legal measures, yeah. and so on. And so nothing too crazy happened. Uh, but the French Revolution, you know, they just lost yeah. their minds and just cut everybody's heads off. Okay, that's not good. Yeah. So the conservatives have a good argument there. You know, we want to mm. conserve things, not never change, but yeah. that the change has to come, you know, very carefully, you know, through constitutional amendments that you know, have to be, uh, you know, carefully thought out and voted and have a, you know, a super majority or an actual, you know, constitutional amendment, two thirds of the states and so on. That those measures are in there for a good reason. So nothing too wild happens very, you know, nothing too fast. Right. 
It's like my, my, my little campaign slogan is, you know, you know, what do we want? Slow, gradual change over a long period of time. And when do we want it? Eventually. Eventually, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Eventually. You know, no one's going to rally around that. Yeah. Uh, no, that's true. Everything has become, I don't know, maybe it always was like this. We had friends over for dinner the other night, and uh, they had actually lived through the 1968, uh, early 70s period when... Uh, Robert Kennedy was killed, Martin Luther King was killed, and there were riots and protests in America. And uh, they said it just, this time is different. Uh, as if, and, and part of it's probably because of social media. Um, but I, is, is it different this time? Yeah, you know, I don't, I don't know. It's, I, I ask a lot of my friends too that are older uh, than me. I'm 67, so in 68, 1968, I was in eighth grade, so I didn't really uh, know what was going on. But you know, Vietnam and you know, and RFK and MLK being assassinated, and, and Watergate after that, and you know, it was pretty volatile. It was pretty crazy. Right. Uh, Democratic National Convention in Chicago. You know, the Chicago Seven trial is a big Netflix film now. You know that that was a pretty crazy time. I, so there may be a recency effect. It feels worse, and, and then also you know we have a pandemic thrown into all on top of oh, all this stuff. So right. it does make it worse i guess um but that's a slightly different subject but um you know i don't know it's bad enough that we don't really need to make comparisons if it's the all-time worst or just really bad it's it's bad enough you know that you know and again it's just you know the principle of charity uh, that is give your opponent the the benefit of the doubt that you know they're not evil uh and that just assume they have a good intentions whether you're a conservative or a liberal that the other side really just wants the same thing you want I mean, like on the abortion issue, also very divisive and probably going to get worse. Attempts to overthrow Roe v. Wade or pack the court so it doesn't get overthrown or whatever. Well, you know, I, I try to make the argument with conservatives. Well, I'm uh, the problem is an abortion. It's unwanted pregnancies, right? Right. And they usually go, yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, well why are women getting pregnant when they don't want to? <laughs> well, okay, now we can dig down, you know, education, lack of access to birth control or religion, you know, whatever. Right. And uh, and then, so there are specific things we could do and, and just kind of just reduce the number of abortions. Which and that has – European countries least, have done yeah. that successfully. So it, it can actually be done. You can achieve, you know. Yeah, absolutely. You, there, yeah. there we can use the comparison method. I mean, it's not an experiment exactly, but it's it's a kind of – natural experiment that happens anyway different countries and different you know have different uh, laws about abortion and then you can see what happens yeah you know in countries that allow abortions and have uh, give women more economic power and choice and freedom and they have education and access to birth control, birth control. Uh, then the number of abortions goes down over right. time that's that's yeah, I, I don't. I, I want to say it's a no-brainer, but you know, it's it's not fair to make these comparisons. This is a very large country, um, with yes, you know, I, a very I know, heterogeneous. I that yeah. Maybe that's right. Now, the one thing that makes when we say is it different is the crisis of polarization different this time. Um, one thing that I think worries most people more today than maybe in the 60s and 70s is what's happening in colleges and then now also, uh, you know, from K to 12, that uh, the if the future generations are being indoctrinated with a hostility to reason, to objectivity, to free speech, 
uh, to the founding principles of this country, if all of that is smeared as racist and uh, uh, you you have to be ashamed of the history of America, uh, of course, understand all the things that America did wrong, uh, but there are also... uh, a number of things that America did right and wonderful and spread to the rest of the world. And this country, to me, is still exceptional. Uh, if the future generation is now put in, you know, these kids who are uh, being exposed to uh, the woke philosophy, uh, that sort of makes this time feel a little different. Uh, uh, the future a lot more bleak, uh, much bleaker. Uh, than if you were in the 60s or 70s when perhaps people thought, okay, we, we are going through a crisis, but it's going to pass. Yeah, I think the binary thinking that we tend naturally to go to cognitively is a big problem. That is to say, uh, if either America is the perfect shining city on the hill and it's a utopia, or it's a racist cesspool because of our history, well, <laughs> it's not either or. You know, we have all these things in our past, like all countries do. Yes. Right. Uh, I mean, if we're going to do reparations, imagine what England should do with reparations <laughs> to all their colonies, right? I mean, it, it just would never end. And if we're going to give reparations to African-Americans. What about Native Americans? I mean, look at the history. Of the, just read some you know, classic works in this, like Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee. It's just terrible to read these stories. I know that's outdated now, but you know, there's other ones that, you know, it's like you can, you can acknowledge all that and say, you know, here's the 10 things we did that were really bad, and here's the 10 things we did that are really good. You know, why, why can't you do both of those? <laughs> and, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and that's what we have to do, just kind of go, go have more continuous thinking rather than binary thinking, and that, that would be helpful. But it's not natural, so it requires effort. And, you know, in terms of what you're identifying as, you know, the kind of woke philosophy going through K through 12, I'm worried about this because, uh, you know, I have a five-year-old now. He's about to start kindergarten in the fall, and my wife and I are, you know, really worried about this, and she's from Germany, and she's just flabbergasted what's been happening since she moved here seven years ago. And I yeah. keep telling her, no, no, don't worry. It's going to change. It's going to change. <laughs> this pe- that pendulum is going to swing back any week now. Yeah. So she's constantly asking me, where's that pendulum, Michael? <laughs> it's like, well, I know it looks bad. And we're hearing stories even here in pretty liberal Santa Barbara that, you know, like okay. the woke stuff has trickled down into grammar schools. Yeah. You know, where uh, we talked to one head of school of this little private grammar, private, not public. You know, yeah. you, you think they might not go that direction. No, no. She said, I said, what about, do you have any like transitioning kids? Oh, yes. We're very supportive of our transitioning kids. Like what? I mean, yeah. what are you talking about eight-year-old, 10-year-old? Yeah. And I'm like, oh, boy, okay. I mean, I just asked her, how confident are you that an 8-year-old understands the concept of gender (laughs) well enough to make decisions as adults when we don't even let them drive or vote, (laughs) much less take medicines without parental and and physician approval and so on? And she said, well, you know, I, this, I'm kind of out of my, you know, we, we consult with experts. I'm like, okay, who are these experts they're consulting yeah. with? Well, I'm afraid I know who those are, and that's probably not good. And I don't want to sound like a, an old guy. I'm starting to sound like my dad now. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I, again, I'm pretty liberal on most of these social issues, but it just goes too far. And, 
and uh, just let parents decide what's you know, yeah. about sex education and gender and race and all that stuff. I mean, these are private matters. Schools, you know, what, this shouldn't be the business of teachers. I want them to teach, you know, I don't know, pre-algebra or whatever, you know, yeah. literary study, something, you know, that's educational, not this kind of race, religion, gender. These are, you know, these should be private matters. And I think that would help if enough of us stand up to it, which you know, a lot of people are. But there's consequences for this, standing up to it. Um, and on that, that itself, we have to stand up to that. You know, there shouldn't be consequences for expressing your opinions. I can't wait for that backlash. And I, I do want the pendulum to swing, but I want it to swing right back to the center. <laughs> And, uh, right, the center. Yes, yay! Yeah. Three cheers for the center. I know it's so Three boring. For, right, <laughs> but the boring is what we want. We want boring. So we that, want you know, boring. I don't have to think yeah. about these things. I want boring. <laughs> I want boring. I think it's been too exciting, uh, in the wrong way, in many ways. Um, Michael, as always, you're enlightening and cheering, actually, uh, and. Just a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much. And I'd love to have you over again, uh, please. Uh, there's just so much to talk about. Oh, that'd be great. Subject. I, uh, yeah. Well, you're, you're doing way more than, than I do in, in terms of activism. I, I, you know, I support your organization, and I think what you're doing is, is really great. And you know, the, the stuff that has happened to you is itself an indication of this you know, polarizing climate. That has to change. That is just not right. For you know, my fellow liberals, social liberal anyway, to be critical of you, one of the great champions of women's rights, you know, which we've been fighting for for half a century, and then now all of a sudden you're the enemy. What? This I think that there are liberals and liberals. The liberals at the center, I have just perfect friendships with them, and I have they haven't rejected yeah. me. Yeah. Had always support, and thank you, Michael, also for your support. But I think we are talking about people who, in my view, are actually not liberals. The woke are anti-liberal; they are not liberals. But because they have yeah. taken, you know, they've put themselves in the Democratic Party and call themselves progressives, we give them the label uh, liberal, but they are not liberal. Uh, and I think they are as much your yeah, enemies maybe, as they maybe. are mine. Maybe we should call them illiberal. There's different well, terms, you know, regressive left, yeah. But the illiberal yes, is correct, I think. Illiberal and regressive, that's, that's, uh, that's the woke. But once again, thank you so much. And we'll just keep on uh, fighting for and pushing for this backlash, uh, hoping that it's going, the pendulum will go back to the center. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds good, Ian. Thank you so much. I'm honored to be on your show. Yeah. Michael, thank you. Thank you for joining this episode of the Ayan Hirsi Ali podcast. If you are enjoying these conversations, please subscribe to support this podcast at ayanhirsiali.com. I'm looking forward to next week's episode when we will have part two of my conversation with Michael Sharma.